Good morning. I'm glad to be here. Glad you're here. Uh, the sermon this morning is taken from Colossians 2. Um, the title I've given this is The Tradition of Christ Versus the Tradition of Men. As before I read the text, uh, I want to say a few things. Um, this is one of the most difficult chapters in the Bible. Um, some of the verses are hard to understand. I won't go into all the details. I'm not going to explain why, but uh, some of the phrases. It's partly because we don't know exactly what... Um, what the errors were that Paul was addressing. Um, the second thing I want to say is the chapter has implications for our personal lives and, and for church life because uh, Paul criticizes uh, four, four things. Uh, that we may or may not be guilty of. And uh, I'll just uh, say what these four are to start with. In verse 8, uh, it's the philosophy of men that is rooted in the tradition of men and in the rudiments of the world, whatever they are. And I believe that uh, verse 8, this philosophy of men, um, I hadn't really seen this before I was preparing for this sermon, uh, but I think that verse and whatever he's addressing there uh, is the foundation for the three things that he uh, says are wrong in verses 16 to 23 which are uh, what we could call ceremonialism and mysticism and asceticism. So um, there, there are challenging ideas here, and I'm going to try to uh, talk about these. And maybe I should uh, tell you, too, that that after I got here, I found out that I don't have one page of my notes, and that's uh, a pretty serious problem, but we shall see what happens, okay? So I'm going to read, uh, first of all, the chapter. Um, in the first half of the chapter, um, Well, verse 8 is included in the first half, but the first half mostly talks about the adequacy of Christ uh, to combat these false teachings, beliefs, that Paul is addressing in verses 8 and 16 to 23. So the first part of the chapter is mostly about Christ and who he is and why he's the answer. And then 
verse 8 and verses 16 to 23 talk about the problem that he's addressing. Um, so beginning in verse 1, I'm reading from um, it, um, it's called the King James Version 21st Century. It's very similar to the New King James. For I would that you knew how great is my conflict for you and for those at Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be comforted, being knit together in love, unto all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, that they may acknowledge the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words, for though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the spirit, rejoicing and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Okay, I'll pause here and just say this reference in verse 4 to enticing words um, is related to what he's addressing that's wrong in verse verse 8 and verses 16 to 23. And then in verse 5, the uh, mention of their order uh, is connected to um, this idea in verse 7 that they are established in Christ and and there is a tradition, order, tradition, that is connected to Christ and following Christ that, that is different than the tradition of men. It's trying to uh, help us think about what we're reading here. For though, verse 5, For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the Spirit, rejoicing in beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. And now the uh, really challenging verse, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, following the tradition of men according to the rudiments of the world and not in accordance with Christ. So that last phrase, not in accordance with Christ, is contrasting the order and uh, the walk in Christ that they received, have received as a tradition. And he's contrasting that with this tradition of men. 
For in him, in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And ye are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power, and in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Ye are buried with him in baptism, wherein ye also are risen with him, through the faith wrought by the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us. He took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having despoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it, that is, in, in his cross. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or drink, or in respect to a holy day, or the new moon, or the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward by feigned humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, being vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding to the head from whom all the body having nourishment ministered and knit together by joints and bands, increases increases with the increase from God. Therefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to its ordinances, Uh, such as... Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. That's a a question. These things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, but are not in any honor against the satisfying of the flesh, or don't have the power to control the flesh. So, I don't know what you're thinking, uh, but I would say as I'm reading, I'm thinking this is challenging. Okay, uh, verse 8, which talks about... um, to give my notes here, it talks about um, this philosophy and vain deceit and tradition of men and rudiments of the world. So the idea of philosophy 
uh, of man is um, the idea of human reasoning that's that's based on something other than uh, Jesus and the revelation of Jesus and the tradition of Jesus that that the early church knew had had been taught that they had received and it it's through this philosophy of men um, is rooted in tradition of men and now the, the challenge with these phrases is that it's unclear uh, exactly what it's referring to um, so it's either talking about, or maybe both of these, the oral tradition of the Jews that was added uh, to the Old Testament, and probably also to pagan uh, traditions, uh, which which were designed to help people understand um, the world and how it functions um, things that happen in the world things that happen in nature that are hard to explain hard to understand we don't know what's going on uh, this tradition of men uh, is explanations oral traditions, pagan traditions that were intended to explain difficult, uh, hard to understand uh, how the world works sort of issues. Or for, the, for uh, the Jews to help explain further, um, I think it's safe to say, uh, Part of the purpose of the oral traditions of the Jews, uh, it was an attempt to make sure that the Jews actually kept uh, the law. And so there were additions to it. And then rudiments of the world uh, seems to speak of elementary uh, principles, um, or systems, and again, not not rooted in revelation. These are reasonings um, of men, and um, I feel a little cautious here because uh, the reality is that none of us. Uh, I think this would be true. I don't think anybody thinks about spiritual things without thinking. I'm sorry. I know that didn't say a thing. Uh, I think all of us try to make sense of spiritual issues, theological issues. Uh, like what's it mean to be fallen? Uh, there's a lot of questions. I have a lot of questions, probably most of us do, about things that aren't clear in Scripture, and so we think about them. And and the hard thing is when we start thinking about them and think that our thoughts uh, 
what we've figured out as explaining something that's hard to understand, then we think that that is really uh, the truth and equal to whatever the scripture does say. And sometimes uh, people's reasonings, philosophies, uh, actually contradict the scripture, but they don't see it that it does. So this, this is verse 8 that I think Paul is saying that this um, philosophy, human reasoning of men, which is rooted in tradition of men, um, pagan or, or tradition, and rudiments of the world, these elementary systems of thought, they are the basis for uh, these three things that he addresses in verses 16 to 23. Okay, so the, the first one in verses 16 and 17, um, see what is on your notes. Ceremonialism, foods and festivals, um, so it talks there about days and foods. Well, foods and days, foods first. And uh, Paul criticizes um, the, the keeping of days, keeping of foods, don't eat this, don't eat that, whatever. Um, and says that this is not... Um, it talks about uh, don't judge anyone based on food or drink or keeping certain days. And so the, the issue here is that I think what the Bible does, what the New Testament teaches is that it, it is okay uh, to not eat Something and to set aside days to remember. And this is a personal affair. This is not a church issue. And you, this is not a matter to judge somebody about. Uh, it's okay to uh, set aside a day to meditate or to remember something or decide that I won't eat this or that. Um, but it's not right to impose that on somebody else. And it's also not right to think that you have earned standing uh, a higher spiritual status by having done that or that you have earned salvation in some way by doing it. So then we have verses 18 and 19, mysticism. Uh, let, no, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. 
So this, this is an extremely hard two verses. Um, and there's some things here that I don't really understand. But it's very obvious that there's, this is a serious problem because he says it could beguile you of your reward, that is, rob you or cheat you or take away from you the prize. And the prize seems to be the prize of salvation or assurance that you are a Christian. And it seems to be connected to uh, something about worship of angels. Um, so this, this it, the issue here has something to do with um, thinking that a person is not spiritual if they don't have a certain kind of spiritual experience. <clears throat> So if I may, I'll give a few examples. Uh, If you don't have certain kind of uh, visions, if you uh, can't speak in tongues, there's various things like this that people arrive at conclusions that this is the mark of spirituality. And the Bible does not say that. This, this is something that people arrive at in their reasoning about something. So Paul is saying, don't, don't be deceived by this kind of reasoning, by the kind, the kind of spiritual experience uh, that people think others should have. Uh, now I'll say this. Uh, my experience with people is that people experience that their the way that people experience spiritual things differs with people. It's a way God created them to function inside, the way their mind and uh, their thoughts and emotions and I don't even know what all functions. People have different kinds of internal experiences. And this is not something that determines how spiritual they are, of course, unless it's not uh, of God. So these mystics, Paul says, delight in voluntary humility or in false humility, in self-abasement, in anything done to appear humble. And, of course, humility is godly. So what are these people doing that's not right? And the best that I could tell is that it, it appears that their worship of the angels was an attempt to appear humble by not appealing directly to the supreme being, to God. And uh, I think part of the issue here is that there, there was a belief that that um, God was too high and holy and and uh, uh, humans are too lowly. And there had to be 
intermediaries between God and people. So angels functioned as the intermediary. And this belief also resulted in them thinking that Christ could not have been both human and divine. So these mystics, Paul says, intrude into things they have not seen and do not understand. They don't know. I feel like I need to say pardon me. They don't know what they're talking about. That might sound judgmental, but I think that's what Paul is saying. And this suggests that they base their system, their religion, on visions and reasonings which have no basis in the Christ revelation, in the revelation of Christ. And Paul says these mystics also have a carnal or fleshly mind. They have rejected Christ as the head, verse 19. They have rejected Christ as the source of life, as the sustainer, as the one who supplies the needs of the church. The third uh, item here in these three is don't minimize Christ through asceticism, uh, which is... Uh, rigorous self-discipline, self-denial. And this is a uh, rather complex and complicated subject as well. Um, so asceticism is the religious doctrine that one can reach a higher spiritual state by rigorous self-discipline and self-denial by trying to avoid all that is physical, by doing the don't handle, don't taste, don't touch mentioned in verse 21. So the challenge in these verses is that uh, we all know, I'm going to say we all know, that establishing structure and routine and practicing spiritual discipline Disciplines, these are all an aid in living well. They are. And people that get up in the morning and have no idea of any kind of structure, any kind of routine, um, they have no good practices in their life, they, they have no order. I'm trying to use the word there that Paul uses, that's used in the text earlier in the chapter. They have no order in their life. Jesus hasn't influenced them in any kind of way that their life is more orderly than when they lived in sin and did whatever they felt like. Okay, we all know that there is value in structure and routine and spiritual disciplines. Even if we don't practice any, we know, yes, probably it would be helpful. So what is Paul condemning in these verses if it's true that there's some value to structure and spiritual disciplines? So verse 20 suggests that believers are freed from 
bondage to, and again we have this phrase, rudiments of the world, uh, which seems to be regulatory, elementary regulatory laws, such as the Old Testament laws that regulated Jewish life, or the laws of God, gods, that ruled the lives of pagans. So one thing Paul is saying is that it is wrong to think you have become more holy or have earned salvation by not handling, tasting, or touching. Just the fact you didn't, that makes you more holy and that you've earned salvation. So then I want to say on the other hand, it is okay not to handle, taste, or touch because you want to structure your life in a more productive way. Uh, but don't engage in this kind of asceticism to earn something. So I'll, I'll give you a few examples. Um, I know people, might be myself, but I'm not guilty of this one. Huh? at least one of them. I know people who tell me that they, they are unable to restrict the time they, face on, they spend on Facebook. They cannot, they've tried, and, um, and we have Facebook. We are on, uh, I do not go on. Uh, Mary Sue will tell me once in a while I need to look at something. But I'm just saying that this is an example of something that uh, really hinders people, and, and YouTube can be that way, um, that it, it's taking up their time, and it might be okay to some extent, some of this, but can have difficulty. Uh, it's also wrong to think that these kind of rules will control fleshly appetites or give power for victory. So I think I'm right about this, that ascetic rules, uh, according to this text, Paul is saying they seem to be expressions of devotion to God, of humility, and of a commendable discipline of the body. But ascetic rules do not have in themselves the power uh, for victory. And it may be that, that Christ can work, the Holy Spirit can work in some of these disciplines, but they do not in themselves have the power for victory. Uh, Christianity is not a religion of prescriptions, but of a living relationship with Christ who lives through whatever we uh, offer to him, surrender to him, and whatever uh, spiritual discipline we practice. He must be in it and working through it. So this this is uh, this doesn't mean that that. Once we are in Christ, everything is permissible. I'm not saying that. Uh, 
but only those who are controlled by the Spirit will ultimately have victory. So here are some questions I wrote down uh, about use of rules and disciplines and don't taste, touch, and handle. They're not in your notes. Uh, Is there more emphasis on the guidelines or disciplines than on the power of Jesus working through them? That's one question. I think it's a valid question. Does one's disciplines result in pride, the view that we are the only ones who are right, or a critical spirit toward others? And the third question, does one, one's view of disciplines stress formulas, human effort, or special visions more than Jesus? Uh, the fourth one, uh, how does a church make a statement about what we agree is the way we want to follow Christ without that statement becoming the way we measure our spirituality or measure whether we are having victory over temptation. In other words, do we think that by obeying or practicing the discipline we are now spiritual or that we have now addressed our deeper heart issues? Uh, So I ask this because I know people who have a strong enough self-will, whatever, I don't know if that's the right term, but they have a strong enough self-will not to do something, but they still have deeper motivations that are not resolved, and, and when they're in a weak moment or when someone's not looking over their shoulder, they do this thing, and nothing has changed in their motivation. Um, so that's, that's just a question I'm raising. Okay, Paul's solution. Paul's solution, uh, there are a number of things said, and I'll do this briefly. In verses 5, 6, 9, and 10, he mentions that the solution to all of this problem is having the life of Christ, being in Christ, having the fullness of Christ, whatever all that means. In verses 11 and 12, he says his solution is to experience a spiritual circumcision. And, and I think, obviously, that he is contrasting this spiritual circumcision with the uh, ceremony of circumcision in the Old Testament. Like, so there, there's something done to the body and to the flesh. It's external. Jesus does something to the heart, and it's internal, and it, and it cuts away something inside people that frees them from bondage to something. So circumcision of the heart, a spiritual circumcision, he says, this is the answer. Jesus is the one who performs this. Verse 12, uh, Paul mentions by being buried with Christ and dying with Christ. And this, this is, um, that phrase is connected to Romans 6.6, 6, uh, Romans 6, 4-6 where uh, Paul says that we have died with Christ and the body of sin has died with Christ. That is, 
the picture is that who we were before we were buried with Christ has died with him, and we are free from it. Who we were and the practices of our life, the ungodly ones, they, they have died with Christ. And, that, and would then we are risen with Christ. And so, verse 13, we are being quickened by the life of Christ, and we live out of his life. He says this is the answer. Then verse 13 also talks about forgiveness. Um, and the idea there is that uh, guilt, uh, sins that of the past, um, carry with them guilt and shame, and in forgiveness we, we are freed from the bondage related to those sins. And uh, we are now in a right relationship with God and are at peace. And then verse 15 uh, talks about Christ's victory over principalities and powers. Um, yeah, I think that is connected to uh, the pagan. I don't know how much of this was Jewish, but the pagan idea that in their... Um, in their uh, elementary systems, they had somehow um, explained how to overcome uh, what they saw as the forces of nature that were against them and powers of the gods. Um, so Paul is saying that Christ Christ has victory over evil powers, and it's not doesn't rest in these systems, pagan systems. And then, uh, which we haven't talked about this morning, but then chapter three of Colossians, immediately following these verses, uh, elaborates on what it means to be risen with Christ, to be dead with Christ, to have one's life hidden with Christ and to mortify sin, the deeds of the body, and to be a new man. Okay, implications for church life. This might sound dangerous, but we can talk about these things. So one thing I see here is that the traditions of men and the tradition of Christ are two different things. Uh, so in... In verse 5, Paul says he rejoices to see their good order. In verse 6, he says they should walk in the way of life that they received from Christ Jesus the Lord. And this way of life is an ordered life, an orderly life, an upright life. And this way of life forms the tradition of Christ, which is contrasted in this chapter with the tradition of men. So my point here is there, there was, at this time already, a way, an orderly way of living that was different than sinners. It, it, and Paul refers to it as uh, the tradition of Christ, the order of Christ. 
In uh, verses 11 to 15, Paul mentions circumcision of the flesh and the handwriting of ordinances or requirements that was against them. And he mentions these as belonging to the category of traditions of men. And he says these are removed or they lose their power through the circumcision of the heart by Christ through the resurrection to new life by the resurrected Christ, through the forgiveness of sins, through the nailing of the handwriting of ordinances or requirements to the cross, and through the disarming of evil powers by Christ in his cross and resurrection. So I'm saying there's a difference between the tradition, traditions of man and the tradition of Christ. The second thing, uh, I'd say, Scripture does not support the popular religious view that any focus on obedience, any focus on following Christ, any focus on the tradition of Christ and entering into it, that this is, uh, on applying Scripture to one's life, this is legalism. And that's a very common, popular, I heard this often enough, I'm not trying to be critical. I'm just, I heard this often enough at Liberty when I was a student there. Uh, the definition of legalism, uh, the, the belief, um, the belief that any, any focus on obedience, uh, you're earning your salvation. That's legalism. Um, so scripture, I believe, commands believers to love Jesus and to follow Jesus as Lord, to obey what they know he wants, and, and that as we do this, uh, we are being saved. I'm not saying there wasn't a beginning point of trusting in Jesus as Savior. I'm saying this is an ongoing love Jesus, follow Jesus, discern what he wants, and enter into it. And this is salvation. And it's not legalism. Uh, um, this doesn't mean that statements of belief and statements of how we intend to live are wrong. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm in the wrong place. To obey because you belong to Jesus is not legalism. Maybe to obey in order to... Uh, we obey because we are saved, not in order to get saved. Now, the third one, I understand Colossians 2 to be teaching that traditions of men do not have the power to control the desires of the flesh. So this doesn't mean that statements of belief and statements of how we intend to live are wrong or that they're legalistic. It means that even though they may be helpful in clarifying what we understand Scripture to teach and what we, the way we intend to live, they do not provide power for victory. They don't address deeper issues necessarily. 
All I'm saying there is that discipline statements have limitations, and I think it's helpful if we know that and acknowledge that. It doesn't mean they're wrong. Uh, faith in Christ is intended to result in a lifestyle, a church culture, an order, to use Paul's term, that is upright and full of integrity, not just so we can be different from sinners, but because we are following Christ as Lord. And then I have a comment here about Acts 15, because this is one of the passages that relates, there are others too, but that relates directly to what's said here. So, just my summary, Acts 15 demonstrates first that some issues need to be addressed by the church to resolve conflict or clarify doctrine. Second, that the decisions that Gentiles do not need to be circumcised to belong to Abraham's and Christ's family of faith, which is what the decision was in Acts 15, it was not an example of application of Scripture. It's a statement of doctrine. Third, that their decision was a compromise of sorts in which Jews were not allowed to demand that Gentiles must be circumcised, and it's a statement that Gentiles were not allowed to do these four things that are mentioned in the chapter, four things that were a major offense to the Jews. That's how I understand Acts 15. The fourth thing that although Acts 15 is an example of how a difference of beliefs was resolved, it cannot be used to prove that a church must develop and my operative word is an exhaustive list of rules to make sure people will live right. An exhaustive. That's not what they did. They didn't develop an exhaustive list. But again, I feel like I need to say to be understood, and maybe I won't be no matter what I say, I'm not saying there is no value in clarifying important issues. I'm not saying that statements of faith and practice violate Scripture. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying they have limitations. I'm saying they can have both positive and negative results depending on how we view them, what we think they can accomplish, if they can't accomplish that. They can accomplish some things. In Colossians 2, Paul says that there is no substitute for the life and work of Jesus in our hearts. Um, I need to sit down. Thank you for listening.